We've been talking about uh, love, sex, marriage, all those good, happy topics the last couple of weeks, and we're going to continue that conversation uh, today for the next 25 minutes or so. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Jeremiah kind of kicked off this section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount uh, by reminding us that Jesus compels us to live by love in our imaginations as well as in our bodies. And that sometimes we get, we got to wrestle with this idea that it's difficult to see somebody else as a much loved child of God and a sexual object there for your pleasure at the same time. And we have to be, we have to take responsibility for that. Okay. Uh, last week, Leslie reminded us that every relationship in our lives is an opportunity to learn to love the way God loves us. Not just marriage. Marriage is not just the be-all, end-all of love. Every relationship is supposed to be wrapped in love. In fact, maybe my favorite part of the gathering last week was when Leslie asked us to turn to each other at the end and say to the person near you, I'm committed to love you the way Jesus loves you, the way God loves you. That's, that's pretty significant, right? If we just look around this room and always thought, I'm committed to love you the way God already loves you. I want to I reflect that back to you too. That is the ball game. And really, those two messages were a fantastic on-ramp to this subject today. So I'm going to deal with a subject that I think is super important, uh, but it would be really difficult to deal with it if you didn't have those first two messages to kind of set the table. So if you miss them, it's not too late. Technology means it's always available. Go out and find them later. Listen to them on our podcast. Catch up on uh, one of our social channels or whatever. But I want to read to you again what Jesus says in this next little piece of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, it was said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a divorce certificate. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual unfaithfulness forces her to commit adultery. And whoever then marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, th this is one of what we've called Jesus' antitheses. He has six, maybe seven of these in this piece of the sermon where he has this refrain he uses. You've heard that it was said, and he names something from their Jewish law, the Hebrew law, that they're all familiar with. And then he adds, but I say to you, and he strengthens that for the kingdom of love that he's initiating. He's basically saying, let's get this to this, because this was really the point all along. And so he follows that particular formula here uh, again. A couple of things that might be helpful for all of us in this room before I dig into what Jesus is saying and what, what it might mean for us. Uh, first of all, uh, don't check out. This sermon is not just for divorced people or remarried people or even married people. This sermon's for all the people, okay? There's not a person in this room, young or old, that this subject doesn't touch your life or somebody's life that you love in a very personal way, okay? So lean in. And I hope you can take away the good news from uh, what Jesus is saying to us today. Secondly, if you're not already familiar enough with our culture here at Meadow Heights, I'd, I'd like to just be sure this is clear to you, that this is a safe zone from shame and guilt for people who are divorced or remarried. So we have a long history with that. Today will be no exception. But in case you don't know, we want you to know that. So if you happen to be affected very personally by what Jesus is saying, you could lean in as well, and you can relax while you do it. In fact, if anything, this good news will probably be even better news for you, okay? And third, don't forget what Jesus is doing in the entire Sermon on the Mount. He is not giving moral instruction as much as he's revealing a whole new way of being human. 
Skyjatani says, Jesus isn't merely interested in good behavior. He wants us to become good people. That's what he's up to here. And so more than anything, he's giving us a picture of this is what life could be like when everything is done on earth as it is in heaven. When everybody finally acts in love and only in love. <laughs> we, we call it becoming human again because we're convinced that what Jesus is really up to is getting us back to the dream God always had for humanity from the very beginning, but it got lost for a really long time and it's got to get recovered. So he's doing that and he's bringing clarity to it. So keep those things in mind. That'll help us navigate this, this sermon, I think, together really well. Let me share with you the good news that I get to proclaim today. The goal of marriage is not to avoid divorce. It is to learn to love in a way that reflects the love of God. A healthy marriage takes steps to keep moving in that direction. Although the ideal is to be with one person for life, in a broken world, the ideal often gets broken too. And it's only by God's grace that any of us ever get married the first time or the second time or the third time. Now I want to dig into that with you. Some of you may have grown up in church and community environments like I did, uh, where the standard that was probably not intended, but was often communicated, is the standard for a Christian marriage is pretty much this. Stay married. No matter what, stay married. And if you couldn't, for some reason, stay married, the D word, <laughs> divorce, was on the very short list of pretty much the worst sins you could ever commit. You're pretty much a second-class citizen. And... You're divorced for life unless the other party commits adultery or dies so you can pursue another relationship. No matter what you do, you are always married to that first person or that other person in God's eyes forever. Probably at the extreme end of this, but just to illustrate how extreme sometimes we've gotten with this, uh, I remember pastors from my childhood who uh, preached that if you were divorced and remarried and later you wanted to get right with God, the only way you could do that is to divorce the person you're married to now and go back and remarry the person you divorced originally because you're still married to them in God's eyes. So that's the only way you'll ever fix this thing. And if they're also remarried, they have to divorce their person so that they can get back with you and both of you could finally get right. <laughs> Man, that raises a whole lot of questions, doesn't it? <laughs> when I was a kid, even as a young adult, I thought, what? That, that really... That really raises questions like, so now we're going to break up one or two more families in order to fix a family that already got broken up. And, and what if there are kids in these new families? What's going to happen to those kids if we're going to go back and try to reconstitute some other family, you know, some earlier iteration? And is there a statute of limitations? Like, how long could this be that you've been divorced from the other person? And you're probably in a whole different stage of your life now, you know? Does that ever expire? Or is that always the only, uh, what if you weren't even actively following Jesus? You didn't even know about God's love maybe when you got that first divorce. You're supposed to go back and now fix something that you didn't even know you were unfixing possibly at the time. And then there's that little technicality that the only way to get a divorce legally in God's eyes or to remarry is for somebody to commit adultery. Are you supposed to hope and pray the other person does it before you do it? Or are you supposed to hope and pray they just die? That'd be better. I just wish they would die. 
Probably people who are divorced have wished that before. People who are married have wished that before. You know, like easiest way to fix this marriage, somebody's got to die, right? (laughs) And is that one phrase in our wedding vows, till death do us part, seriously more important than all the other things we said in our wedding vows? All kinds of questions. We were miserable. We ended up hating each other. Made our kids miserable, made everybody else miserable. But we didn't cheat and we stayed married, gosh darn it. Is a marriage on paper only what God had in mind when he said we should take our marriage vows seriously? These are good questions. They're not always questions that get answered very well. I'm going to do my best to try to help us wrestle with some of them this morning because I don't want us to leave here and say, no, that doesn't make sense to me either. Now, you may or may not agree with the interpretation I'm going to give of what Jesus says, but at least you'll have another one on the table to go, oh, maybe, maybe I need to wrestle with that one. I hadn't heard that particular way of seeing this yet. So maybe that would help. Here's, here's the biggest thing I think is going on here. It's not just that I have questions and say, oh, that doesn't seem like it makes sense. I think logic's important and human reason's important, but sometimes good things don't make sense in the moment, right? So that, that's not enough to take all of this apart. I think the most important thing is that that interpretation does not fit with everything else Jesus is doing in this part of the sermon. Remember what he's been saying? We've been looking at this for weeks and weeks, months really. But he's saying the law wasn't sufficient on this particular subject, whatever subject he has at hand, because the law was mostly governing people's behavior, their outer world. He says none of that was getting to the heart of the matter. None of that was was dealing with the inner world. Remember when he said, don't start, with, don't start with murder. Start with the anger that led to the murder. That's where you start to go. Don't start with adultery. Start with the lust that got you to the adultery. That's where you start the conversation. So why would he reach this point and then do the exact opposite on this subject? The reality of your marriage doesn't matter, just the legality. Don't mess up that piece of paper. God doesn't care if you love each other. He doesn't care if there's any substance to your relationship. Do not end it. Is God going to really create a technicality that as long as you're not the person who has sex first with somebody else, you're in the clear, even though you might have been thinking about it twice as long as they did. You just didn't act on it. None of this goes along with anything else Jesus is teaching in this second. Does it go along with Jesus' ethic of the kingdom at all, which is always about what's going on on the inside of a person, what's happening in your heart? Never, uh, this is a big statement, but it's a, it's a clear statement scripturally. Never does God perpetuate a system at the expense of love. The system is always designed to get us to the love. <laughs> and when it doesn't, God always subverts the system in favor of love. Real life is often messy. Amen? Oh, come on. There's more than three of you have a messy life. (laughs) Real life is often messy. Amen? Amen. Yes, it's often crazy messy, which is why I could call this good news today. The goal of marriage is not to avoid divorce. Marriage is a love laboratory. It's to learn to love another person the way God loves us all. And there's probably nowhere in your life you'll experience that, a crash course in that kind of love than in a marriage relationship, maybe a parenting relationship. Those are about the top of the pile, you know? So a healthy marriage says we'll keep taking steps to move forward in love together. That's our commitment. 
we're going to love better by the time we're done than when we started. In an ideal world, we'd all be with one person for life. But in a broken world, the ideal often gets broken too. And it is only by God's grace anybody gets married. The first time, the second time, the third time. So, now that everybody's curious, y'all, I told you to lean in. Y'all are leaning in. <laughs> Welcome back, Brian. Your eyes are about this big. Now that we're all curious about where Jesus is going, let me point out some things from the passage that I think we should be aware of. Okay, now the first one you might not be aware of unless you're reading along with the sermon and you've already read the next part or you have your Bible open right now. You might have noticed this, but I'll just point it out. It's kind of interesting. Jesus drops this little tidbit about marriage right between what he says about lust, we just looked at that, and what he says about lies, which is what he's going to talk about next. It's almost like Jesus knows that lust and lies take a toll on a marriage, and in fact, there'd probably be far fewer divorces if we just took seriously what he said about truth-telling and what he says about controlling our lust, the way Jeremiah challenged us with that a couple of weeks ago. So, just a curiosity, but I doubt that was an accident. <laughs> it sounds like something Jesus would have probably done intentionally. Second thing we notice, and I'm going to spend just a bit of time on this, Jesus makes men and women partners in the marriage. This is not how the culture worked at this time. Divorce was allowed in Jewish culture. It had been for hundreds and hundreds of years. It was only allowed, though, if the man initiated it. It was all about the man. Now, I'm going to read to you from the Law of Moses, where Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, and he quoted something. I'm going to go back and actually quote that now, okay? So let's look at what they all knew he meant. But this is from the Law of Moses. Let's say a man marries a woman, but she isn't pleasing to him because he's discovered something inappropriate about her. So he writes up divorce papers and hands them to her and sends her out of whose house? It's his house, okay? He writes the papers. He's the one not pleased. He can decide there's going to be a divorce. Sends her out of his house. Don't forget that in the ancient Near Eastern culture of this time, women were considered property of their husbands. It was a pretty revolutionary thing at that time for God to say, I'm on the side of the female here. You don't get to treat your wives just like your other property. You have to take this seriously in a different way. And he clarifies, Jesus clarifies here, I never, in, God never intended, I never intended, our father never intended for husbands to be able to abandon their wives on a whim, which would then force them into another marriage to be supported. That was their best possible chance. They were very dependent upon the men in that economy to support them. Or maybe it would end up being either abject poverty or prostitution. That's pretty much the only options that they had. Revolutionary idea that women should be considered in the marriage in a different way than you would consider whether I'm just going to sell that cow at the sale barn on Thursday. Okay? That's not the same thing as how you treat your wife is basically what God says. And Jesus is saying... We hold men responsible for the choices that they make. Right now, men get to make the choices. You're responsible, men. Proceed carefully. That's a really revolutionary thing. Jesus underscores that. Maybe the most important thing I'd like for us to pay attention to is that Jesus is never interested in the ideal over the real or at the expense of the real. Let me go back and finish what the Mosaic Law said. Let's say a man marries a woman. She isn't pleasing to him because he's discovered something inappropriate about her. He writes up divorce papers. He hands them to her. He sends her out of his house. 
She leaves his house and ends up marrying someone else. But this new husband also dislikes her because apparently this is a system now. We just do this kind of, you know, helter-skelter. He writes up divorce papers. He hands them to her, sends her out of his house, or suppose the second husband dies. In this case, the first husband, who originally divorced this woman, is not allowed to take her back and marry her again after she's been polluted in this way because the Lord detests that. In other words, the Lord detests this system where men are just doing this sort of thing randomly and quickly and on a whim. He detests that. God, again, is on the side of the vulnerable person in this picture. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Hang with me to the very end. Yes, Scripture over and over and over says the ideal is that every one of us would only have one partner, one sexual partner for life. In fact, if we take Jesus real seriously, the ideal is you'd only ever think of one other person in a sexual way in your whole life. That's pretty high standard, right? God also knows that isn't always going to be the case. Not in your imagination, sometimes not in your actual life. And so God accommodates our brokenness by defining a loving way for things to move forward when real happens because ideal can't. And God always does this. Let's just talk more quickly about how he gets this done here. First, he says, there must be a certificate of divorce to prove that you divorced the woman. By the way, that was for the woman's sake. Because now she has legal papers, if you will, to show to the next guy, I'm free to marry you because he really did kick me out. If she didn't have those divorce papers, it wouldn't be certain that she was actually divorced. In fact, do you notice, by the way, that the assumption is the woman who gets divorced is going to marry again? That God built this assumption into the system. We want to have a way where she can get married again legitimately so somebody can provide for her and possibly her children. By the way, that is what is meant by she's polluted in this way. All that means is the ideal didn't happen in this situation. The real happened. And so now because this is a situation where a woman is divorced, we want to be sure we're taking care of this woman and she has legitimate means by which to be provided for in the future. Second, as an accommodation, once that husband writes that certificate and divorces his wife and she remarries, he can't have her back, which is God's way of saying, slow the train down, man. Don't just do this kind of thing on a whim because you get one shot at this. And if you get rid of her because you're mad about something today, you don't get her back tomorrow. You know who that's designed to protect again? The woman. So that she couldn't just be at the whim of men who keep kicking her out of the house. In fact, God specifically says he can't marry her again, which I think kind of curiously blows a giant hole in that teaching I heard as a kid that you have to divorce the second one and go back to the first one. Apparently, that's not what God's been saying for thousands of years. Maybe a good way to, to think of this that's helpful for us, we, we say this frequently about tough subjects like this, two things can be true at the same time. The ideal for marriage matters. Throughout Scripture, we're told the ideal for marriage, one person married to one other person for life, this matters. It should be taken seriously. Sexual expression should happen within that. This is true. And the real matters. <laughs> when life really doesn't work out like that, 
when love is at stake in some way, that also matters. And the seriousness with which we take our marriage should not prevent us from dealing with the real circumstances that come up when they do, and they frequently do. In other words, what you could say about the Mosaic Law, what Jesus says in the book of Matthew, what Paul eventually says later in the New Testament when he permits divorce, you could say God honors the making of covenants. God also has created a system that will honor the dissolving of those covenants when that's necessary. We don't often hear about that second part. We don't often look at this and think, oh, that is actually what's going on there, isn't it? Here's how you dissolve that thing, he says. God works with the real that we give him, not just the ideal he may wish we would give him. That applies to everything, not just marriage. We say God meets us in reality because that's the only place he can meet us. Amen? You ever given God something in your life that was less than the ideal? He said, God, if you can do anything with this mess, would you please do something with it? He does that all the time. He specializes in it. A couple of other quick examples where we see this play out. In ancient Near Eastern cultures, we know that God creates monogamy for the Hebrew people, but they live in a whole culture of people who are polygamists. And many of the Hebrews also became polygamists. They had multiple wives. Many of them had sometimes hundreds of other sexual partners available in their household. You know what God does? Read the Old Testament. He blesses those people. He uses those people. It doesn't mean he approves of this arrangement over here. It just means that God always has to start with where we are, and he has to work with what we give him, and he's good enough and big enough to be able to do that. God can handle the real. He's always more concerned about reality than he is legality. Let's jump to the New Testament. Jesus gets in trouble with the legal experts all of the time because he's constantly breaking the law. Who does he hang out with? They call them sinners, <laughs> prostitutes, tax collectors, other notable sinners. Jesus is hanging with them all the time. He's partying with them all the time. They're not at all threatened by him. They love him. They can't wait to be with Jesus. He's not offended by them. In other words, this was real life. These are real humans God cares about, and Jesus meets them right there. Would it be fair to say that if God were as hard-nosed as we sometimes make him out to be, we'd all be in, in a lot of trouble? Amen? Amen? We'd all be doomed. First time you lusted, done. First time you hated, done. First time you cultivated anger, you're over. <laughs> all kinds of things in Scripture that we'd be toast. According to Jesus, and Jeremiah talked about us meeting at the bottom a couple of weeks ago, such a fantastic picture to have in your mind. We all need God's mercy, not just divorced and remarried people. Amen? Every human does. And because we know now that God is just like Jesus, what does Jesus show us? Jesus doesn't remove himself from our sin. He's not threatened by our sin. In fact, Scripture says he bears our sin, he becomes our sin, and he even works with our sin to move us toward the love of the Father. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Amen? That is significant, friends. The goal of marriage is not to avoid divorce. That falls so far short of what God actually wants. He wants us to learn to love another person the way we're loved by God. That's what marriage is about. And if you want a healthy marriage, you'll keep taking steps forward to do that. How do I become better at loving? How do I become better at loving the way God loves me and God loves them? Yes, in an ideal world, the ideal is to be with one person for life. 
Anybody who's divorced knows that would have been great if that could have worked out, you know? There's a lot of pain that comes when that doesn't work out, but, but it sometimes doesn't because the world's broken and sometimes the ideal gets broken. And whenever it does, we got to remember it's only by God's grace anybody ever gets married. No matter which number you're on, can we agree with this? It's only by God's grace anybody stays married. Amen? I mean, I guarantee you every marriage in here is like, it is pretty much a miracle that we're still making it, you know? Because every marriage has had its chapters. I want to do one more thing before we land this. It's because, and by the way, just so you know, I cut a whole bunch of stuff out, okay? Because this wasn't time for like a three-hour sermon, so you're welcome. However, I do want to do this one other thing before we wrap this up. There's another place in Matthew where Jesus teaches on the same subject, and I think it would be worth dropping in on that conversation because it comes up in a different context. But he says some stuff here again that helps us see how Jesus deals with the ideal and the real. It's Matthew chapter 19. The Pharisees, the legal experts, who are always policing Jesus' behavior, and they're always trying to reel him in on some conversation about the ideal that God wants. And he's always resisting, by the way, to get to pull it back to the real to be sure that you don't make me choose between the ideal and the real. And he basically says, here's how you hold the tension of both things at the same time. Look what he does. The Pharisees come to him in Matthew 19. In order to test him, they said, does the law of Moses allow a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Which it kind of had evolved into that over hundreds of years. And Jesus said, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And God said, because of this, a man should leave his father and mother and be joined together with his wife. And the two will be one flesh. We often read this at weddings. They're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, humans must not pull apart what God has put together. Notice what he's doing. Here's the ideal. Jesus reinforces it. The Pharisees said to him, then why did Moses command us to give a divorce certificate and divorce her? And Jesus replied, Moses allowed you, notice the change of words, he allowed you to divorce your wives because your hearts are unyielding. In other words, this is the real that sometimes happens. But it wasn't that way from the beginning. I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, when Jesus references adultery here, don't miss this. He's not creating a technicality where here's your legal loophole to get out of the marriage. Just hope and pray that the other person has sex with somebody else first. That'll be your get out of jail free card. Not that marriage is jail. Jesus is not giving a moral code here and saying, here's your prescription for how to get out of the marriage. Take one, call me in the morning. That's not what he's saying. He's simply using the word adultery to communicate a description of what happens when real takes over sometimes and ideal doesn't get, get met. In other words, the ideal gets adulterated in the sense that it didn't work in this situation. That's what he's doing here. He's not saying that adultery is automatically justified grounds for divorce. Somebody cheats on you, we're done with them. Now, two or three reasons why that could be the case. First of all, isn't it true that by the time we get to adultery, that's usually a symptom rather than the cause? I mean, almost always, a whole ton of things have been happening before we ever get to the adultery thing, right? A whole ton of things that have violated the vows we made to each other on our wedding day. So my question is, why would this one thing finally be the deal breaker? That's not how Jesus treats any other subject. 
Jesus has been reminding us over and over in this sermon, what's inside matters every bit as much, maybe more than what's outside, because anything on the outside starts with what's on the inside. Why would he create an exception about this one subject that is exactly the opposite of everything he's been telling us so far? I don't think he would. You'll have to decide for yourself. I don't think it's, I don't think it's consistent with Jesus. Second of all, let's not miss the fact that adultery is forgivable, right? That may not always be something that works out, but sometimes it does. I've been a pastor for about 30 years. I've helped countless people, countless people with their marriages to all kinds of effects at the end. But you know what? I've helped a lot of people with their marriage, and I've had a front row seat to watch a miracle of resurrection happen where they would say, I wouldn't wish what happened to us on my worst enemy, and I'd never want to go through it again. But I could also say, I don't think we would have become the people we are if we hadn't had an experience like that. We learn to forgive, and we learn to love the way God loves us, and we figured out a way to move forward, and it jump-started our relationship. Now, that doesn't always work, because real happens. But sometimes, it does. And third, adultery can't possibly be the escape hatch for getting out of your marriage when Jesus has already clarified we're all adulterers. I think Jeremiah used the statistic of uh, maybe 2% of the human population don't have any sexual drive at all, but the other 98% of us have all been adulterers by Jesus' definition the first time we looked at somebody else and lusted over them. Why would Jesus now say, no, 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 no. Adultery is only when you get to the actual physical encounter. That's actual adultery. He just told us that wasn't true. <laughs> so adultery cannot be a legal loophole, legal loophole that Jesus is giving for saying, here's how you get out of your marriage. He's simply describing in terms they totally understood, here's what it looks like when real happens and the ideal doesn't make it. In the Mosaic law, God allows for divorce. Jesus reinforces that God allows for divorce. Paul, later, to the early Christians, he permits divorce. When the real overtakes the ideal. Listen to me, friends. The goal of marriage, if you're married, is not to avoid divorce. That's not the big win at the end of the day or the end of your life. The goal is, did I learn to love more? Did being married to that person help me move forward in my love for God and other people? Did we keep taking steps towards God's love together as a couple? That was the goal. Don't miss the goal if you're married. The ideal matters. The ideal is to be with one person for life, but we live in a broken world. Sometimes the ideal gets broken. God has come up with a way to accommodate that whenever it happens. And when it does, we need to remember, it's only by God's grace any of us got married. It's only by God's grace any of us stay married. <laughs> At the end of the day, we're all pretty much in the same boat. Helping couples is one of the greatest joys of a pastor and one of the deepest sorrows. I have witnessed, as I said, some miraculous comeback stories when both people wanted it to work, whether it was about an affair or something else, but they both wanted it to work and they were willing to do whatever it took to make it work. I've seen people fall in love in ways they never dreamed they could be in love before the conflict that they had. I have wept literal tears. I remember when my office used to be on the second floor of the Go Kids building. I remember sitting up there one Sunday hoping I could get it together enough to come down and lead the gathering because somebody had just told me, their marriage was over and everything can be believed. There's no, no way this marriage should be over. If they just both wanted it to work, it could work. That's happened more than once. 
I've helped some marriages come to grips with the reality that there was no life left to resuscitate. Nothing healthy or flourishing can come from lying to ourselves about something that is dead. I've helped others who've sat in my office and had some sort of pride about the fact that they've been keeping their covenant simply because they never went to a divorce attorney. And I've helped them realize, friends, just because you still have something on paper doesn't mean that you've kept all those vows you made to each other on your wedding day. It does not help to avoid the real while we pat ourselves on the back about the ideal. Amen? When what's real doesn't match it. We've got to get honest with ourselves and God about that. Let me talk to us in this room before we go. If you've been through the pain of divorce, I don't know if anybody's ever said this to you in a place like this or not, but I wanted you to hear it from me today. God knows the pain you are in or have been through, and he cares about it more than you could possibly imagine, and he is not condemning you today. He loves you. If you're fighting for your marriage right now, there's nobody more for you than God is. He knows the desires of your heart, and he knows the reality of your challenges. And if both of you want something you don't know how to get on your own, please get help. There's always help. Ask for help. Amen? If you're married and you've been tempted over the years to feel a little holier than some of your friends whose marriages didn't make it, this might be a good reality check for you to remember, oh yeah, we meet at the bottom, not at the top. If everybody knew all the things that have been messed up in my marriage over the years, I probably wouldn't feel quite as holy as I feel just because I still have this piece of paper with that original person. So maybe just a, a little humility would be in order for all of us because we've all violated our marriage covenants in some way or another, and it's only by grace we get married, and it's only by grace we stay married. If you're remarried, you are not a second-class citizen in God's kingdom, my friend. He knew some of us wouldn't make it, no matter what we wanted, no matter how hard we tried. I think God knows nobody goes up in front of their friends and family and God and makes those vows with the intention of, probably not going to make it. <laughs> we all plan for it to make it. But by his grace, he accommodates us in our sometimes messy reality. And I want you to hear this. You are treasured and you are loved. And whatever marriage you're in right now, God's for that marriage. Amen? He wants this marriage to make it. And if you're not in any of those categories, you must be single. And to that, I would say congratulations. You're the ones who really have it going on. <laughs> uh, scripture tells us only get married if you can't figure out how to stay single so all you single people congratulations you're somewhere at the top of the heap I think the question for kingdom people is always the same question listen to me friends we come back to this all of the time it's the most difficult question you'll ever answer it's the most important question you'll ever hear what is the loving thing to do what will demonstrate my love for God and for neighbor, for my brother or sister, including the brother or sister I might be married to, as Jeremiah talked about or Leslie talked about a couple of weeks ago. I guess I'll put it this way, real simply. We don't look for loopholes, we look for love. Would that be a good way to kind of sum it up? See, when you create a legal system that says, oh, this is how you can legally, legitimately do this little thing, then we all run around looking for, how can I beat the system? How can, I, how can I take advantage of the loophole? It's not a legal system. Everything God's ever set up is a love relationship. And as kingdom people, we know that. We're not trying to figure out the loopholes. We're trying to figure out what does love require of me? 
How would love move this ballgame forward? And so on that note, how about we bow our heads for a couple of moments and let's just reflect on this personally before we go. I think I'd ask first if there's a place in your life or marriage right now where maybe you need to receive God's grace and pursue his love. Not another person in this room, you. Is there a part of your story maybe that Maybe you've never actually received peace. You're still living with regret <laughs> instead of saying, God loves me. He gives me peace. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Today, God, I receive your peace. If nothing else, maybe there's somebody else's marriage you can pray for. The person in your row, that person in your family, that person you've been worried about, pray for their marriage. Is there someone you need to forgive? Maybe the person in the mirror? <laughs> Have you taken pride in your marriage instead of just gratitude for the grace of God that you're still in it? <laughs> Maybe you felt a little bit like, for some reason we're better off than other people and you've sat in judgment of them. Man, this would be a good time to just say, God, I confess that I'm sorry that I've forgotten we meet at the bottom, including in our marriages. A little humility is a good thing for me today, God. Or if you need help, maybe today you ask God for the courage to get it. Pastors would love to help point you in the right direction. Let me pray for us. Father, we are, we're grateful for this good news. There's not a person in this room who doesn't need it. We're grateful that you give us an ideal to strive for. <laughs> you help us see what you've always hoped and dreamed maybe it, it would look like. But God, thank you that you meet us in the real. All the ways of our lives, big and small, you know who we are. You love us. You meet us there. You don't reject us. You don't condemn us. You don't withdraw from us. You run to us. Thank you. Lord, I pray that there are people in this room who will, will, will receive healing from this news today. Father, I pray that there are people who will receive help. I pray for every marriage that exists in here right now, that God, those marriages would become healthy and whole and move toward love. And Father, the places where the real happens and we experience the brokenness life sometimes brings, I pray that we'd remember that you meet us there and you work with it and you love us in spite of it. And you've made ways, Lord, for us to experience your goodness in the middle of the brokenness, and we are grateful for that. Lord, may this church family always exhibit the love of God. May we always be motivated by what's the loving thing to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said.